Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. running down the team's losing ground to the opposing defense the young quarterback waits for the snap when suddenly it all starts to make sense he's got all kinds of time he's got all kinds of time all All right, that's the second time in two days I've played this song on my show. One reason is that yesterday we... I'd screwed up the clock and we couldn't even really let it go all the way through the chorus. That, of course, well, no, no, not of course. Actually, this is a thing where, you know, we are all so balkanized into different little fan bases that uh, Adam Schlesinger, one half of the composing duo behind Fountains of Wayne, wouldn't necessarily be somebody that everybody would know about or you wouldn't necessarily know that he wrote that song, which now seems to be more of a threnody than it was in the past. But uh, that's what we're going to talk about here at the beginning of the show today. I, I promise I promise you the show will get uh, progressively happier uh, as we go along. Uh, We are a little bit later in the show. We're going to talk first about Dave, uh, which is, uh, or or are we going to do that at the end? No, we're going to do Dave. Uh, We're going to talk about (laughs) Dave, which is a very funny series uh, airing on Hulu. Funny and poignant, I think we're going to probably agree, uh, airing on Hulu right now. We'll also talk about John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, which is John Mulaney's semi-ironic tribute to free-to-be-you-and-me type kids specials of the 70s and 80s. Uh, so who's going to do all this talking? Glad you asked. Stosh Makita uh, is a stand-up comedian and, re- and writer based in New Haven. He makes his nose debut today, uh, and we had actually uh, scheduled this well before everything happened that caused us to have to decentralize ourselves. Mercy Quay is founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. Brian Slattery is our arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio. Everybody's joining us by Skype. Uh, and we're going to start just by acknowledging, yes, that one of the things that is happening here is that people uh, that we know about, people that we have different kinds of relationships to, uh, are going to die and die rather suddenly. And this is a group that has included jazz musicians Ellis Marsalis, Bucky Pizzarelli, uh, Mike Longo, Wallace Roney, 
country musician Joe Duff, uh, Joe Diffie. I don't really know who that is. Uh, apologies to Mr. Diffie and his fans. Uh, songwriter Alan Merrill, who actually I did talk a, a bit about uh, about a couple of months ago as we were working on the Laura Nero special that we did. He was a big advisor of hers. Uh, and college basketball star Dave Edwards, no longer a college basketball player. He was 48. Lorenzo Sanz, a soccer player. Uh, on and on. Uh, Manu Dibango, I think uh, Brian is going to want to talk about the actor Mark Blum. I'm going to mention at the end of the show, um, uh, um, Congolese musician uh, Arias Mabili. So, Brian Slattery, I'm going to have you get us started. This We've sort of been here before. You and I were emailing during the week, you know, during the AIDS crisis. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it was spread out more. It, it went a longer time. But there, are, there were all these very beautiful lights that were being snuffed out in a kind of um, inevitable way. Yeah, I mean, like like we were talking about, I mean, that that obviously happens all the time, you know, that you know, artists die and you assess their legacy. And uh, but you know, there's something kind of uh, there could be something beautiful about the natural rhythm of that, you know, that that, uh, you know, ideas get passed on and feelings even get passed on from one artist to the next. And there's there's something kind of nice when that happens when we have time to digest them. <laughs> um, I think what is really sad about a time like this is that there's a sense of connections being severed before we even have time to, to sort of pick up the pieces. And uh, you worry at that point about what is going to get lost. I mean, be- even beyond the, the obviously tragic scope of human life, you know, the, the, the senses of, uh, you know, careers that are cut short, especially because artists tend to have productive careers well, you know, right up until the end. Um, so, you know, that, that part of it, I think the arts community feels very acutely that there's, that there's a lot of work that isn't going to get done. And, you know, that, that part's doubly sad. Yeah, I mean, Mercy, you know, it's a weird thing when it happens because I think also sometimes you don't even realize how important somebody was to you uh, until you're told rather abruptly that they've died maybe through a a wave-like process like this one, too, that there'll be one that jumped out. I mean, personally, when I got the news about Adam Schlesinger, I went to bed and I couldn't sleep. Um, but I wouldn't, if you'd asked me a week before that, with the, how big a thing that would be for me, uh, I probably would have underestimated its impact. I don't know. Mercy, any thoughts about this? Yeah, no, I think that um, it is one of those things that, you know, people can now relate to what you're saying after experiencing, you know, the mass celebrity death that we did in 2016. And 17, I think 2020 is going to give that year a run for its money. Um, I took the liberty to sit down and figure out for myself, who would I care? Would I, you know, who do I want protected during this time? Um, so that I, will, I wouldn't be taken by surprise. Right. And I think, you know, thinking of, you know, astrophysicists, I don't think that is a surprise to anyone that feel nice. I want him to be protected during this time. I don't want to find out that, you know, he met his demise by coronavirus or Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, Andrew Ann, who is um, uh, uh, Carl Sagan's wife and is a scientist on, in her own right. Um, they're all getting up there in age. And, you know, I think a moment like this, when you are confronted with, uh, you know, celebrity death after celebrity death, it's, I think it does put into perspective who, who of the celebrities out there matter to you the most. 
One of the things that uh, uh, Stash, uh, at one point at the beginning as we were planning this, I had suggested that we do something involving the work of Gary Shandling just because he's been speaking very much to me lately. There is a, a moment in uh, comedians in, uh, riding in cars or whatever that Seinfeld show is where the two of them, Seinfeld and Shandling, start to talk about what it's going to be like when they die and what kind of coverage they'll be. And at one point, uh, Gary Shandling says, well, I don't think they'll break in. Um, which I thought was a very funny line. And of course, you know, not too long after that, he, he did die rather suddenly. But I don't know, Stash, how, how does this stuff land for you? Uh, for me so far, the most personal it's hit is for my girlfriend, who's a uh, um, musical theater nerd and a pit musician. So with everything that's happening in the musical theater world, it's been really hard on her. Surprisingly, the comedy community has not really been hit at all considering the way comedians live it's pretty shocking to me yeah that is kind of surprising um is it possible that comedians although yeah it's like a it is a pack animal group you you think of comedians in some ways of being as being somewhat isolative but you're not right you guys are very social with each other yeah and it's a lot of uh it's a lot of traveling it's a lot of meeting a ton of people um it's a lot of late nights and drinking just the travel itself is hard on the immune system. And um, I mean, notoriously, comedians don't take the best care of themselves in general. So that was what was a shock. Um, and, and for, you know, Brian, initially, because we all live in our own bubbles. So for me, the Adam Schlesinger thing was a big thing. I think it was a big thing for uh, our producer, Jonathan McPants, too. Also because he was 52, which is a little bit younger than a lot of the names that we're saying yeah, right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. But but I mean, once again, you, you made a great point. Lots of people, uh, lots of musicians are dying. They just, they're, maybe they're in their 70s or 80s and maybe they come from different worlds. But it would be weird, you said, just to talk about Schlesinger. Yeah, I mean, the, like for me, the one like Manu Dubongo hurt, uh, Ellis Marsalis hurt, and it's not you know th these are people who are who obviously have already they already ha had very long and distinguished careers, um, but it it hurts to lose them all at the same time, <laughs> you know it's and to not sort of have the time to properly you know to properly acknowledge the impact they had. Uh, yeah, but it's it's true. I think that I think that something of this magnitude. I mean, we're all going to get touched by it, even on that level, even and before many of us are touched on a personal level, which is undoubtedly coming. Right. I mean, uh, I haven't yeah. had. Yeah. Go ahead, Mercy. I haven't had an experience uh, with any of the celebrities that that we've um, described so far that felt like it, you know, put me in a particular space. But I will say something that I'm noticing that is kind of interesting is this pandemic felt like it became real for people when Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson um, announced that they were sick. And then another wave of people when Idris Elba yeah. um, and Kevin Durant, uh, uh, you know, announced that they were sick. So I, there's something to say about, you know, the celebrity portion of it uh, affirming this as something to pay attention to. 
There is a way in which things are made real like that. I have this very vivid memory of uh, being sent with a radio crew to cover the first anniversary of 9-11. And that involves setting up in this very weird locale. CB- I was working for CBS at the time. And they had rented this whole Verizon building, which was the kind of the nearest last stand- standing building to, to Ground Zero. And it actually had holes in, in the walls from debris that had flown out from the from the Trade Center. And, and actually, it looked like it had been shelled in World War II or something. It was these big gaping holes. And so and we arrived there at 530 in the morning to set up. And the whole thing was incredibly dreamlike. And I just really had a hard time connecting it with reality. And we walked to the elevator in this kind of dingy, half-intact building. And waiting at the elevator with us was Dan Rather. And I looked at him and I said, okay, now it's real. Uh, and there is a sense, I think, for all of us, you know, that there, that if we don't know anybody, if we don't know a person who's been touched by the coronavirus, as Mercy's saying, there, there's like when the Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson thing came out, there was a sense of, oh, this is like something that anybody can get. Um, yeah. 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 Go ahead. No, I, I'm just agreeing with you. There's uh, it. It. Uh, it's one thing to I mean, I, I think that I've been talking with a couple of people about when the turning point was for, you know, for each of us. And I remember there was the, there was the, there's the, the Atlantic article, the article that's, it was cancel everything mm-hmm. that changed my mind when I read it, but it, that wasn't personal yet. And then, you know, I have, like, I have, I have relatives now who are sick, so it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's personal now, mm-hmm. but the, uh, yeah, I, I think the first, I think Tom Hanks did everybody a real <laughs> favor, <laughs> By announcing what he did, I think I think that took some bravery, and and I'm glad he did it. Yeah, me too. I think so. Kai Rizzo is actually saying he's he's calling March 11th the day that the pandemic hit the U.S. because that is when Tom Hanks announced that he was sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's another funny thing, Stash. Um, uh, we're going to pivot over to Dave in just a second here. But one, the other thing that I've noticed is, so there's a time of day that I'm driving in my car right now. I, I'm actually in my car a little bit more these days than usual, which is sort of the opposite of what everybody's supposed to be doing. But the reality is I live three minutes drive from the WNPR studio, so I don't have a commute. But right now, sometimes at the end of the day, I take my put my dog in the car and I look for some woods that I can go to where we can just sort of walk around and not even see anybody. And and I have noticed I have this whole new relationship with Kai Ristall. You know, it's kind of like I, I, he comes <laughs> on and I think, oh, God, it's Kai. It's my friend Kai. You know, and, and there are a few things like that. And on Saturdays driving back, I have this whole new relationship with Chris Thiele because uh, it's about six o'clock when I turn around to, to head back to the house and then his show comes on and, and it's often music that I like. And I'm talking to another mandolin player here right now. So, uh, but Stash, you know what I mean? There's sort of a way in which we find friends at a time like this. We're we're kind of trapped in our house, and I don't know whether it's you know a particular stand-up comedian you watch all of their specials or whatever. But there are voices that comfort us somehow. Have you found any of those? Yeah, for, uh, for me, it's listening to um, a podcast I don't really usually even listen to, the Joe Rogan podcast, when he's had the um, the uh, uh, pandemic experts on recently, uh, just to hear about everything that's going on there in like a more casual setting. I've also been doing a lot of driving just to get out of the house, not to anywhere in particular, but just to leave. And one thing I've noticed is that when you go out in these, um, in these empty streets, 
even though we're all bunkered in right now, there's a weird sense of togetherness. And I don't know if anyone else feels it, but for a time when we're all mandated to be separate, we really feel together in a way, which is, uh, it, it feels good. Yeah. Just what's going on out there. Well, maybe that's an upbeat enough note for us to pivot away from this, you know, pretty serious subject towards Dave. Uh, Dave is a, uh, boy, somebody else should have to describe Dave. Dave is a series uh, about an aspiring, uh, white rapper named Lil Dicky, uh, uh, whose real name is Dave. The whole thing is a parallel uh, to the actual, uh, situation of the protagonist and creator of the series, Dave Bird. Um, so it's about his aspirations. It's about his ability, a wish to fit in within the world of hip hop. It's also about his wish to fit in at all in the world. And then it's a, also very much an ensemble comedy with a, a really tremendous ensemble of players, uh, each of whom is probably kind of struggling the same way. You know, how do I fit in? Where do I fit in? Are there things about myself that I have to change uh, in order to fit in? I don't know, Stash, did I do a reasonably good uh, job of setting up the premise here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I found myself relating uh, to this show just on a next level as uh, I wasn't too familiar with Lil Dicky before this, but it turns out that we've had very similar histories. I won't ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although that certainly is a conversation open. It's either a conversation opener or a conversation stopper. Hey, Kat, let's uh, give them a little taste of what uh, Dave sounds like, and then we'll hear a little bit more from our guests about this. This is from season one, episode one. Uh, you're going to hear Dave Bird as Dave and uh, Taylor. Let me see. I don't know. How do I say that name? Taylor Misiak, I think, as his significant other, Allie. Holy moly. What? Huge turning point moment in my career just occurred. What? I was in the studio with YG today. YG? Yes. Yes, I've heard of them. It's one guy, it's not a group. Okay, still cool. Yeah. What was he like? What did he say? Well, we didn't really, I mean, when you're in the studio, you don't really talk that much. You just like vibe and listen to music. Okay. But the really cool thing is his manager just texted me and said that YG will get on one of my songs. Dave. And that's, uh, yeah, I'm very excited. That's so cool. Wait, what song? <laughs> uh, what song? Can I hear it? You can hear it when it's done. It's not done. I know. I don't like having too many cooks in the kitchen. But okay. I won't cook. I'm just excited. Bless your soul. No, though, because I just, you know, trust the process. Dave. What? You always do this. Do you realize that I'm dating a rapper who what? I've never heard rap out loud? Oh, my God. Will you rap for me? Will you rap for me right now? Oh, my God. Rap for me. Rap for me. This is a kindergarten beatbox. Throw it down. Look. I don't know. Please. I don't know. I know. I'm sorry. Please. I don't know. No, it's my job. Uh, I don't ask you to come home and teach me things. Oh, you just asked me if pork was beef. There are a lot of people that don't know that distinction. Okay, can I at least know the name of the song? Girth. So, um, so Mercy, I, I think for all of us, as you're watching the beginning of this show, it stands accused a little bit of being Atlanta with like a 50% or more than 50% white cast. Um, although, I don't know, as it went along, I thought it kind of earned its own distinctions a, a, a little bit. Maybe that, that was an unfair burden or label or something to put on it. I don't know. How, how, did, it, how did it work for you? You know, I think that if your introduction uh, to Dave is Atlanta for white people, that's fine. Um, you will find that right around episode, episode two-ish, um, 
you'll find that it stands on its own. Like you said, it is a distinct piece um, in a lot of ways because it's autobiographical. Um, Dave Bird, the rapper, uh, Lil Dicky, he's he sort of in a way bringing his his own the details of his own life to the screen um, and telling them in a way that is real. I think he picks up a lot of really heavy topics. We see that in a couple episodes with the character Gata, um, and he brings up his um, his youth in going to. Uh, overnight sleepaway camps in the most recent episode, growing up as a you know Jewish kid in America, what that feels like. Whereas Atlanta, Atlanta really didn't have that. I think that Donald Glover created Atlanta to tell a rapper's story from a perspective that if you if you know if you're from Atlanta and you were sort of like in the rap game in Atlanta, you could relate to. And for everyone else, it was sheer entertainment, but it wasn't autobiographical in the way that Dave is. Right. And, you know, Brian, I also feel I mean, first of all, it could be that I don't watch enough very cool cutting edge stuff. But I, I first of all, found this really, really funny at times. I mean, when it's funny, it's really funny. Um, yeah. And, but but also yeah. very frank and honest about really like a large number of topics. It's it's the. Yes. Uh, well, anyway, yeah, you, you go ahead. Just run with that. Yeah, I mean, look, look, like I'm I'm a huge fan of Atlanta, and I feel like part of part of what if if it ends up being the sort of uh, TV show that is influential in the way that something like Twin Peaks was influential, then awesome, like it, more to the <laughs> benefit of TV altogether. You know, the, I think that I think that part of the comparison is that you know there's there's something about the even just like the style of the camera work, the rhythm of the people's speech like the, the timing of the jokes, you know, that feels like it owes something to Atlanta. But I think that like, who cares ultimately? Because, you know, you're allowed to, you're allowed to take the things that you like about other shows and, and work with them yourself. I mean, that's the way art works. Um, that's fine. And for me, what I liked about this show, you know, once I, once I sort of understood that, you know, this is going to be more about digging deeper into the characters here, the digger, the, the 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 deeper it dug into the characters, the more I liked it. And for me, like the turning point was at episode five, um, where I felt like suddenly the pieces all kind of snapped together, and I was all in for this show in a way that I was kind of uh, waiting f- to happen. Right, and uh, I think know, episode five is. Yeah, I ahead. think episode five is a good starting point to have this conversation about you know how the show. Um, picks up these frank uh, issue yeah. matters. I think you know the the entire storyline around Gata and um, awesome. I don't think it's a spoiler. <laughs> it, it's it, it, it's great. It's great, and I don't think it's, it's a spoiler awesome. to say that he finds yes. something about uh, this character. He is suffering from um, a you know some mental health issues. The way that it unravels and unfolds throughout the story throughout the episode is beautiful. And then when it comes to a head, yes. when they're in uh, the studio, it's just frank. The moment is still, and we can't actually, as a as the viewer, we don't know exact. We know we've we've gotten we've gotten the hint that you know he's, he's at the he's at the pharmacy, and we understand what's going on. There's not a name to it yet, though, right? And so the moment yes. at the studio, there's the 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 first conversation that he ha- he says it to um, the other characters, and the the way the other characters interact with this revelation for me is is a cue right i think 
especially as, as you know, we're likely going to enter a space where everyone's going to be handling and dealing with um, some amount of mental health concerns. That scene for me acted as a cue and as a, you know, blueprint for how to handle these conversations. Right. I think yeah. I think this we should say that Gaeta uh, is one of the uh, black characters in the series. And he he I mean, in a way, he's one of the tip offs to the Atlanta connection. He's so much like Darius and initially the character played by Lakeith Stanfield on Atlanta. And they somewhat resemble one another. But what he is and what I find fascinating about this, I mean, th- despite the fact that this is a series with somebody's name on the title, Dave, you know, this is really an ensemble series in a lot of ways. And and within yeah. that ensemble, Gaeta, this character, he's very much, you know, in the, he's a type. He's sort of the Mercutio. He's the uh, he's the type. Uh, he's the guy who's in touch with a slightly different reality than the rest of the characters. That he's kind of connecting to some other place. Uh, you can see. Like, it. Yeah, go ahead, Stash. Yeah, take it. I feel like he is the George Costanza of this show, whereas the show may have someone else's name. He's the reason that you're drawn and now locked in. Right. Although I would say that in some ways, Gaeta is the Kramer of the show in the sense that, you know, he inhabits a slightly different world somehow. But but with all of those characters, whether it's Kramer, whether it's Jim Ignatowski on Taxi, uh, whether it's Zonker Harris in the Doonesbury comics, you know, nobody ever asks, how did that person get to be that way? And to me, yes, that, that episode five, you know, where they actually have a clinical explanation for why that person is the way that he is. They, I thought they did break some new ground there. Uh, I agree. In, anyway. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I, I agree. I mean, that's that's where I sort of thought to myself, OK, this show is coming to its own. It's taken it's taken these pieces that are lying around from other shows and, uh, you know, and, and and books and music and whatever. And now it's made into something that's uh, that it can stand on its own with, which yeah. is a Absolutely. which is a good way of saying, episode. which is a good way of saying, like, if you don't like the show in the first couple of episodes, please hang in there until episode five. <laughs> you know, give it give it a chance to establish what it's about, you know. Yeah, I think for most of us, it didn't, right. didn't take quite that long, though. For Mercy, you were saying by two or three. The, the the episodes uh, had persuaded you that this was something different, maybe something special. And I mean, I, w- I would even actually just go ahead and put out there that I didn't need much persuading. I, I'm a little Dickie fan from the beginning, right? So I didn't need much persuading in the beginning. I, I do think that what this show did for me, we meet Gata in episode one um, and this sort of ragtag group of, of aspiring something right they they form in the way that they have in episode one so dave has his his best friend from middle school but also his friend from college that they're already sort of a team gata comes in in that first episode then we meet all of these other rappers um yeah so we're meeting these characters at the same time we meet gata at the same time dave meets gata and something that i think it was really interesting for me is while um while he's not personally relatable to me i think he's a relatable story and what i like that is refreshing that this show does differently is it is really easy to make um your your you know black character he's one of two main uh characters who are black it is really easy to make that black character the comedic relief and in no way does gata or um uh dave's best friend from uh, from his youth fit into that caricature uh, they yes. are not comedic relief at all. They do not provide that. I think that you are absolutely right. Um, 
that Gata Acer of the Mercutio of it all. Um, he is in this other reality. And because of that, we get to see a lot of Dave through, through a different set of eyes. So, Stash, uh, I want the comedy expert to weigh in a little bit more here. First of all, um, does this thing work for you comically? Do you think it's a funny series? Yeah, uh, a lot of it is hilarious to me. Situationally, some of the the joke jokes um, aren't my cup of tea. But as far as the situational comedy, I think it's all great. The uh, the awkwardness that that Dave presents in just about every situation. Yeah, Stop, the... I'm wondering about your um, right. what you think about like. So what I noticed Dave does is he has this like cadence about him. He's like, you're my best friend. Why wouldn't I want you there? I'm wondering what you think about that cadence that he brings to it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a proven it's a proven thing. I mean, in stand up comedy anyway, there is plenty of people who have never written a funny joke that have convinced audiences they're funny through cadence. So, I mean, and especially with a rapper going into comedy, uh, I'm sure he understands cadence more than anyone and how to use it like that. But I, I do agree that, I mean, actually, those the rhythm of the joke jokes, as you call them, Stash, the, that was where I started to hear Atlanta initially. And, and for example, there's just a, a joke that is a sort of a callback to uh, our the first part of our conversation when Mercy was talking about who she would protect. Uh, one of the characters says that his ambitions is, is to be... Um, uh, the the black Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> and there's a little beat, and somebody and somebody else says well, he is black. But that, that that joke could that joke could be in Atlanta really easily, um, and and they're that kind of joke joke there. But I mean, we all just laughed, and we'd already seen it once before, so yes, that's a good argument for the writing anyway, right? Yeah, for sure. All right. I also go, think yeah. another joke like that, if I could just add this, another joke like that was Gate is the one who asked me if hippopotamus are real. <laughs> and I have a, yes. <laughs> it, it certainly it, it could it could find its way into a line from Atlanta delivered by Lakeith Stanfield easily. Right. Yes. Yes. No, I'm reminded of the first episode of Atlanta, where at one point there's a whole thing about Martin versus Malcolm, Martin versus Malcolm. And at the end, there's something about um, Malcolm X being doubted. And Darius says they, you know, they never they never saw the body again after the funeral. Uh, and Donald Glover says, that's how funerals work. Uh, uh, anyway, we have to take a little break. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about a very different uh, kind of television product, something on Netflix. We should say, Dave is on Hulu. I don't know if we said that or not. Dave, if you want to see it, is on Hulu. Music here, music there, music, music everywhere. Use your ear, be aware, you're making music everywhere. When you tap a pen on a paperback book, all right. Not too loud, but you get the book. <laughs> uh, so that's a little clip. That's Jake Gyllenhaal singing something probably you haven't heard very much anyway, Jake and all singing uh that is from john mulaney and the sack lunch bunch um and this is i think john mulaney's uh, very interesting attempt to create 
a TV children's special that I think, well, he has said that uh, it's very much in the style of a certain kind of special that people who remember Free to Be You and Me, the Marlo Thomas special that that featured Alan Alda singing, well, also a questionable thing to have happen, uh, or 321 Contact, that, that kind of thing. But, um, but Kat, let's go back and play um, Cut B0 because in a way, Mulaney sets up the very interesting question about his own show uh, in a little conversation he has right at the top. Hi, I'm John Mulaney, and this is the Sack Lunch Bunch. Oh, oh, hi. oh, hi there. Hey, welcome to the show. May I go to the bathroom? Yeah, uh, sure. What you're about to see is a children's TV special, and I made it on purpose. It's a show for kids by adults with kids present. Recently, I watched children's TV and I didn't like it at all, but I liked it when I was a kid, which means it was better back then. So I made it like then. I have no children of my own, and that's by choice. Sometimes I say I don't have kids yet, but that's just to appease certain people. Getting to know the sack lunch crew, though, I mean, we hung out a lot. I realize these kids have a lot on their minds that I want to explore. Can I ask a question? Yeah, shoot. What's the tone of this show? How do you mean? She means, isn't it ironic or do you like doing a children's show? We talk a lot about that. That's the million dollar question. Um, well, first off, I like doing the show. I mean, the Sacklands Bunch is fun. But honestly, like, if this doesn't turn out great, I think we should all be like, oh, it was ironic. And then people will be like, oh, that's hilarious, right? But if it turns out very good, be like, oh, thank you. We worked really hard and acted humble. And then you went either way. That's the first lesson of this special I just decided. You can go very far in life if you pretend to know what you're doing. A lot of people in TV thrive that way. Name names. Sister, I could for hours. It's John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. We're gonna have a lot of fun. Got a lot of songs and guest stars too. Oh, actually, for guest stars... All right, so that kind of gives you a little sense. And so, um, so before we get to that question, and it, I think it's... There's something almost self-protective about setting up that question uh, so conscientiously and consciously at the beginning. But um, maybe, Stash, uh, you could get us started. For people who don't know John Mulaney very well, he's a former writer on Saturday Night Live and gone on to have his own series and a pretty successful stand-up career. Um, so, Stash, uh, who's John Mulaney to you? Is he a comedian, first of all, that you like? Yeah, he maybe my favorite. He's the best observational comic, or at least the most successful one out there right now, of the new generation. And he found a way to really take observational comedy and and make it less 90s and just take these jokes that could be hack in their presentation. It was like, you ever notice, instead of the you ever notice setup, he builds all these observations into these elaborate stories Um and the the structure of that and the writing is just so impressive. And Stash, he's also, I think, very sort of aware of the medium. You know, I mean, one of the funnier bits he does in stand up is he does the pitch meeting or the pitch description of Back to the Future and and, you know, what it must be, what, what it would have sounded like if you were describing the plot, which a, a lot of which involves a guy maybe having sex with his own mother in the past. And 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 I mean, he just has kind of a nice understanding of uh, of how content works. And Stosh, this seems like a question he's asking about this thing, too, is like, how is this content going to work? Yeah, for sure. He's the best at deconstructing things in that manner. Um, 
even just in in that opening segment there when uh, he was like, I, I recently watched kids television and I didn't like it, but I used to like it. So that means it used to be better. Like his way of deconstruct, like just there, how he sort of eviscerates in one line nostalgia culture, at least to me, that's how it comes off. <laughs> so, so Mercy, yeah. How successful was this for you? I, I do want to preface this by saying for anybody considering watching this, this is kind of like Dave, except that it's all one episode, but you really kind of have to let it cook up, right? <laughs> like if you just, if you just watch for 10 minutes and, and say, it's just not working for me, you probably are not giving it a chance to kind of play around with its tone with you. But so Mercy, how, did you hang in there? How did it work for you? Oh, I thought it was great. But I also thought it was great because, you know, I've, I've recently watched kids television and I didn't like it, but I liked it when I was better, when I was younger. So I agree <laughs> that it must have been better. <laughs> so this, again, I think, so I haven't heard the phrase nostalgia culture before. Um, I immediately relate to it. I think that this feels like if the creators of Mr. Rogers wanted to revive the show in 2020, it would have to be this. Right. I think that um, whether whether the audience is children or if the audience is parents or somewhere in between. Right. I th or, you know, someone like me who doesn't fit. I, I am not a 13 year old and I am not a parent. Um, whoever the audience is, I think they're going to find something really entertaining um, about it. But I also but I think that the group of folks who will find it most entertaining are the group of folks who grew up on things like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. Um, and the really wholesome and quaint TV of the uh, late 90s and I'm sorry, the late 80s and early 90s. But this has the sort of um, frank and in your face and matter of fact spin that we've come to learn and love in 2020. Yeah, and you know, Brian, this this specialty really wants to have things both ways. Uh, and I would argue that it achieves that, but it's the weirdest thing, too, because there are songs and bits in here that really would have fit perfectly well in a Marlo Thomas kids special. There's a there's a song by a kid who only likes noodles with a little bit of butter. And, you know, I mean, that could almost slide right into any, you know, Sesame Street contact one, two, three uh, type of kids program. There's also a song by a young black performer about seeing white lady, a white lady crying in New York City, <laughs> which is like, has got like three or four different layers of irony sitting on it and, and could yes. not appear in anything other than this special. So I, I don't know. G give me your reactions. Well, so, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that in some ways my family and I were like the target audience for this show. We are all people who really like variety shows and lament that they, they don't really exist that much anymore. So that was part of it. I mean, I, I, I should set the scene a little bit, which is that I was sitting here watching this. I just started it and they said, what are you watching? And I said, I'm watching this thing that I have to talk about on the radio tomorrow. And the two of them both sat down and then none of us got up. That was it. Like we were all in for the entire time. Um, I think that it's, I mean, it, there's a lot to be said about how it feels very now in its, its sensibilities, but I think that it's also kind of important that whoever put this together obviously has seen a lot of variety shows and really loves them on some level. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not just this kind of like ironic, you know, variety shows are dumb. It's a very like, no, variety shows are great and you can make them, you can make them great in 2020. And what I particularly liked about it was amid all of this sort of like wonderfully absurd chaos of the humor were these like 
like there's the Andre de Shields and his like startlingly deep meditation on fear <laughs> that sort of comes out of nowhere and is very beautiful. And then the next thing, the next thing is like another thing that's crazy. And I, I loved it for that reason. It was just when it wasn't crazy, it was profound. And then they dropped that, like it was hot and it was crazy again, which is yeah, just about my favorite thing <laughs> to do. Right. And so uh, the big finish, uh, it does involve uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is this character named Mr. Music, uh, who claims that he can hear music everywhere. You don't really get to hear, you don't have to have a musical instrument to hear these things. In fact, <laughs> instruments are stupid. According to- <laughs> <laughs> He's very dismissive about a clarinet that's present there on the set. And, and, um, but it doesn't, and we should say also that one of the other kind of meta conceits of this show that is that Mulaney all the way through is half the time acting as as host and half the time acting as nervous and somewhat irritable producer of the show. At one point, a little kid turns to to walk over to start to sing a song, and he and Melanie goes, "Wait a minute, is there a separate set? Am I paying for that?" Uh, there's just like all the way through. There's there's stuff like that, and at the end, there's this going to be this big guest who's late, and Melanie is vamping, and is he in the car? What do you mean his voicemail is full? Uh, and Gyllenhaal finally arrives, and he and. So, Stosh, I don't know. It could be just me. I, I was just unhinged by this performance. I, I really thought it was hilarious. And part of it, I think, is, you know, Gyllenhaal isn't certainly a comedian, and he's not even really typically a comic actor. But what he does seem to have is a really high level of commitment. Like, he's just going to go all the way with this guy who is uh, at some kind of breaking point. He's a, he's doing a, an act on a children's show, and it's not going the way he wants it to. And you really get the feeling that something pretty bad could happen here uh and so to me stash anyway that's what commitment is yeah 100 percent commitment is the is the name of the game uh i've never seen jake joe paul even perform anything funny before and he completely committed to it there was like earnestness to his rage right and uh, he, he knocked it out of the park yeah, there, there just is that kind of sense. And and I, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but halfway through this number, one of the children who are still standing in a cluster around John Mulaney, one of the children s- says, is Mr. Music okay? And, and, and John Mulaney says, no, Mr. Music is not okay. Mr. Music is having a really hard time. That's I think that's right after the line, work with me here and lower the boom into the toilet. <laughs> Well, anyway, I, I'm glad. I thought what, watching this that there was something wrong with me because I really was laughing really hard at this. And the children, by the way, are being asked all the time about their anxieties and their fears of death and uh, all kinds of, you know, semi-inappropriate Those were questions. great. Yeah. Those were great. Those, Those segments really were great. amazing. I thought, that was, I thought that was really great. I thought, I, you know, I think that, again, so in, in this metaphor, um, the kids are also traversing acting and acting like they're acting and not acting and it's it worked really well i you know in particular the the black kid at the beginning um who is charged with singing this uh the ballad about uh, the crying white woman in the beginning when we meet him he's asked to draw a picture of his parents and john mulaney goes (laughs) 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 if his father is marlon jackson (laughs) (laughs) and i spent the rest of the piece wondering if that I didn't I didn't pull out a second screen to research it until later on wondering if that kid was mom and Jackson's son 
My my right. wife did exactly the same thing. I, I had the, I, I had the same reaction that maybe he was Marlon Jackson's son. The yes. way that John Mulaney asked that question too, he, uh, because he draws his grandparents and they're the they're the grandparents of the Jackson Five. Oh, right. uh, mm -hmm. And and then uh, John Mulaney said says, "Is your father somebody who had a really exciting musical career as a kid and then went on to have an incredible success as an adult, <laughs> or was it just the first part?" Uh, <laughs> 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 anyway, I, I, we have to stop because they're going to wreck all of Mulaney's jokes. I shouldn't be telling them at all. So, But there's enough there, believe me. Uh, it's John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. You can get it on Netflix. Let's take a break and let's get some recommendations from our panelists. make a scene at a restaurant, but there's only one meal that I ever want. Just noodles with butter and not too much, and they have to be the tube kind of I won't touch. I got to do some quick thanks to Cat Pastor, who is keeping the beat here all the time uh, in the studio, making sure the show sounds the way it needs to sound. Jonathan McPants is the producer of this episode behind the scenes. It's Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, and uh, Katie Tularski, Tim Rasmussen, some great tech people like Gina Matruda and Joe Koss. So thanks to all you people. This is a different way to broadcast and sometimes a challenging way. Thanks for making it less challenging. All right. Recommendations. Uh, Brian Slattery, you go first. Um, my recommendations these days are more about finding ways to disconnect a little bit. <laughs> I think that we're like, given that we've done a show about all about the media you can consume, which is obviously great. And obviously we need to follow the news, but I think it's just as important to find ways to not pay any attention to any of that for a certain part of the day. <laughs> and, um, I would say, think about, uh, visiting your state parks when it's okay to do so. Uh, and the, you know, we're still working all of that out, but even just walking around the block. Um, and the second thing is that as an arts journalist, I've been telling a lot of stories lately about people who are sort of okay because they're finding lots of ways to occupy their time in their house that feels sort of creative and productive. Um, and you know, beyond the actual products that they make there's just the, the the process of doing it has turned out to be sort of grounding and um it, it's it's going to sound stupid to say that like everyone should pick up a hobby of like arts and crafts but i actually think it's a pretty darn good idea <laughs> all right yes um a lot of people are sewing masks too these days um yeah so, yeah but they don't have to be relevant to the no <laughs> what's going on might be healthy yeah. if sometimes they weren't all right so mercy yes. what have you got to, to recommend to us uh, I think in the same line of escapism that Flatterly just gave us, I'm going to give folks a way to think about the cosmos and the, uh, which is very, again, on brand for me. Um, you can right now on, uh, Netflix and Prime, uh, Amazon Prime binge The Expanse. Um, the, uh, latest season came out just last fall. Um, and I think there's a total of maybe four seasons. So that there's a good amount of binging there. There is one season of this show that did not work on, uh, on Netflix. It's called, um, Another Life. It did not work. It's one season, but it is, uh, 10 episodes of sheer, not greatness. It's, it's actually pretty bad, but it's a space thing. So I'm throwing it in here. And if you want something good. The Black Neil deGrasse Tyson explains everything is on Amazon Prime. <laughs> so there you go. And yes. it is 
it is he is for uh, about five minutes each episode picking up one topic and explaining all the aspects of that one topic. You can find that on Amazon Prime. All right, Stash Makita, give us some recommendations. Uh, well, because we did John Mulaney's sack bunch, I wanted to recommend Mad Men, which thematically also ha- uh, shares the idea of both damning and celebrating nostalgia. All right, so binge, binge Mad Men, is that the plan? Exactly. All right, so um, first of all, um, apropos of the John Mulaney thing, the, the music in the John Mulaney thing is, is pretty good. Um, I mean, a lot of these songs uh, work pretty well as songs. They're written by a guy named Eli, Bo- Eli Bolin, who also wrote songs for season three, episode three of Documentary Now, which is a parody of the D.A. Pennybacker uh, documentary about the recording of the cast album of Company. This takes a while to explain. Uh, this, but the episode's called Original Cast Album Co-op. It features, ri- features Richard Kind singing. Richard Kind is also on the Sack Lunch Bunch uh, thing as, as himself. Uh, and it's, it's really a very, very clever thing. I mean, what they've been able to do is to kind of uh, to create songs that almost sound like they could have been written by Sondheim uh, and then recreate the atmosphere of that documentary about the recording of the album. Uh, in honor of somebody who passed, the actor Mark Blum uh, passed from coronavirus. He has a medium-sized role in Mozart in the Jungle. If you didn't do Mozart in the Jungle the first time around or the second time around or the third time around, it's on Amazon Prime. It's really terrific. It really says all kinds of interesting things about music. You'll learn a lot about music. It says some things about people who play in orchestras that I can sort of vouch for as being kind of real, too. So thanks to our guests here today, uh, to Stash Makita, comedian, Mercy Quay, founder, principal consultant for the Narrative Project, Brian Slattery, arts editor for the New Haven Independent, producer at WNHH Radio. We'll be back on Monday. He done shot me in my shoulder.